This is August 9th, 2020. And uh, for Tasha this morning, I'm going to read from an article on white privilege and uh, comment on it. A couple of articles, actually. Um, it seemed to me that uh, that this is kind of a first step at recognizing, now acknowledging white privilege is, is one of the very first steps of getting active, getting engaged with this huge, huge problem of systemic racism. And um, especially because our Sangha, uh, meaning virtually everyone hearing this, because our Sangha is 98, maybe 98% white, that this would be useful to, to all of us. It was to me to read this. The article is, uh, it came from uh, Psychology Today, um, or rather, it's from a, a um, an audio program called Speaking of Psychology, which is um, put out by the American Psychological Association. Uh, and... Uh, the article is the invisible, or not the article, the, the, yeah, excuse me. This is a transcript of an interview. Uh, and the, what the interviewer called this interview is the invisibility of white privilege. And the interviewer, a, a Kim Mills, uh, is uh, interviewing a Brian Lowry, Ph.D., and this Brian Lowry uh, is a professor of organizational behavior and, and a senior associate dean for academic affairs at the Stanford Graduate School of Business. Lowry is a social psychologist by training, and he studies how individuals perceive inequality and the steps they take, if any, to reduce it. And much of his research is on how white people make sense of the unfair advantages that our society confers on them. So uh, what I've done here, because it was a bit ragged, it's because it's a transcript of, a, of an interview, a live interview, uh, is I um, edited it a little bit, cleaned it up a little bit, as I would want anyone to do for a transcript of one of my talks, and uh, I'll just start right in with it. Uh, he, he, she first asked him about some work he had done with uh, uh, regarding strategies that white people use to cope when confronted with evidence of white privilege. And he calls these the three D's, denial, distancing, and, hopefully, dismantling. So he begins by saying, the psychology that drives it, that is, uh, this 
white privilege and the way we respond to evidence of it, the, the psychology that drives it is a desire to feel like a good moral person. This is, I think, important. Um, a good way to establish right from the outset that uh, those of us who deny white privilege, uh, it's because we're, uh, we, we, we want to feel like good people. No, no one doesn't want to feel like a good person. Um, you could say that, that even uh, people engaged in racist behavior probably think that they're doing good, whatever that means to them, protecting, protecting the white race, uh, protecting, conserving things as they've always been in this country, the racial inequity. Um, so if we can acknowledge that that's how it starts, each one of us wants to feel like a good person, especially in uh, people in religion, in, in, with a spiritual practice. And he continues, and in the context of a society that explains our outcomes as a function of deservingness, of meritocracy, it challenges our sense of self to believe that we might have benefited from unearned advantages. And in the case of race, the idea that being white has conferred unfair advantages can be incredibly uncomfortable. So I think that's the psychology that drives what we talk about. So discomfort uh, at the prospect that uh, we may have um, benefited from unfair advantages. He goes on, but what actually happens, how that's managed can vary. One thing that white people do is to deny that they personally benefit from white advantage or white privilege. And this is done in multiple ways. One common way is to highlight hardships they faced. That is, we white people. And while we think those hardships are legitimate, that everyone faces legitimate serious hardships, hardships themselves don't somehow absolve people of privileges or negate the existence of privileges. So that denial is an interesting strategy. The idea is, if you've gone through something hard in your life, then being white doesn't confer ad advantages or privileges. Or it's the idea that privileges or advantages means that life is always easy for you. That's not the claim we make. So that's the denial side. All right, just to just add a little bit here. We know that there are plenty of white people, plenty of white people who have been brought up in a way that has caused them suffering in all kinds of ways. But the one challenge we don't have to face, we white people, is 
racial prejudice. At least racial prejudice on behalf of the dominant race in our society. The, the irony here is that, is that uh, it's often people, white people with the, uh, in the living in the worst circumstances or who have been uh, brought up in the mo mo greatest hardship, it is those people who uh, get on board with racist policies. But there's one uh, headwind that poor whites don't have to face, and that's uh, being black in a in a society that is has systemic racism. So that's a denial. A second way that white people cope with uh, evidence of of white privilege is distancing or distance, he says. And the distance one is interesting in that it allows for the existence of privilege, but simply says that I myself don't benefit from it, right? It doesn't deny that privilege could exist for other people, but that I myself don't personally benefit. Whereas denial is a way of sometimes denying the very existence of privilege. This uh, I found really very compelling, uh, the way he goes at this, not just the way he goes at it, but the evidence that uh, he has found in his studies, uh, empirical evidence, first either either denying it all altogether, no, white privilege isn't a thing, or maybe acknowledging that it can be, but uh, uh, I myself haven't benefited from it. I suppose that there may be some people hearing this who aren't convinced, uh, white people that is, not, who aren't convinced that, um, that people of color are disadvantaged. But it doesn't take a lot of reflection to consider that, in fact, black people and other people of color are have fewer opportunities right from the outset, generally. They have fewer opportunities, or let's just flip it. Uh, white people generally are more likely to have uh, opportunities uh, in, with uh, education uh, denied uh, people of color um, we have opportunities of health care. This has all been documented. You see it every other day. You see an article about this, supporting this, uh, that blacks don't have uh, access to the same health care. And even before that, they don't have access to um, groceries and, and other... They don't have the the means to take care of themselves in the same way in terms of diet and other things. We certainly, I suppose it can be more obvious that uh, white people have an advantage in 
in uh, our relationship to police. There was a, uh, a kind of workshop on uh, uh, racism uh, here at the center. I was out of town or something then, but I heard from participants it was very, very good. And uh, one exercise they did was uh, at the beginning or maybe halfway through was uh, the the uh, the person in charge invited everyone who had uh, a favorable view of the police uh, to step forward and uh, or maybe I'm not sure now maybe it was who have had basically okay experiences with the police in the past and most of the white people stood, stood uh, stepped forward but then not the black people. And the evidence is piling up that you are at a serious disadvantage if you're stopped by the police and you're a person of color. And then it goes on to uh, justice more broadly, the sentencing and the incarceration that we white people have privilege there. And in real estate, we had a, a seminar on the uh, shameful uh, history of redlining in Rochester, our own Rochester here, where there were certain sections of, of the city, uh, this is maybe the 1950s or 60s, where if you're a black person uh, you wouldn't stand a chance of being able to to buy a house. And then there are also uh, now more and more evidence of inequities in terms of pay. Pay for the same work, just as there are with, with women. There are with people of color. So in, in all kinds of ways, with exceptions, with exceptions, but in... Broadly speaking, white people have quite a leg up going through life. If, uh, if, if you don't buy this, then you might consider <laughs> whether what's working is, uh, is you're denying it or you're distancing yourself from it. Obviously, uh, these are these are this is a generalization, and there are always going to be exceptions to this. And then he ends by saying, uh, after talking about distancing, uh, he says, "Whereas denial is a way of sometimes denying the very existence of privilege." And the interviewer, Kim Mills, says, "Meaning that nobody has white privilege." Lowry, right. So you can also see this denial in the way some people focus on very successful black people, right? As a way of saying, look, they made it, therefore there isn't racial inequality. So there are other ways to get at that denial of privilege, that it doesn't exist at all in this country. Until very recently, at least, whites were claiming that they were a target of discrimination as much as black Americans are. So there's a lot of evidence that whites are uncomfortable with the possibility that white privilege exists at all. 
and then further that they personally benefit from it. Mills, you've done research on how discussions of racial inequality and privilege are framed, excuse me, you've done research on how discussions of racial inequality and privilege are framed, how that affects people's reactions to them. Are there strategies to talk about racial privilege in a way that leads people to dismantle, to a dismantle reaction rather than a denial or a distancing reaction? So this is what we would want to be part of, not denying or distancing, but dismantling uh, structural racism. Lowry, that's a good question. When people are willing to accept that privilege exists, there's reason to believe that they might support policies that dismantle it or work against it. And it looks like when people feel more affirmed in their self, when they feel better about themselves, it's easier to acknowledge the existence of privilege. This, I think, is an important point that uh, uh, racist behavior or beliefs uh, often do come out of a, um, a diminished sense of self, an insecure sense of self, and vice versa. In a number of our studies, we show that when you affirm people's sense of self, we could say self-esteem, when you give them the opportunity to talk about what they value, what's important to them, they have an easier time acknowledging the possibility that privilege exists and that they might benefit from it. And once you can get people to see that it exists, then there's a greater, greater likelihood and more, I wouldn't say comfort, but a greater willingness to support policies that dismantle that privilege. This is, uh, this is fascinating. Um, you know, it's best in Zen practice, um, if you, if you, in order to see into the no-self of everything, if you can see, in order to see through the self, it helps to have uh, formed a pretty solid or secure sense of self. Forming a, a sense of self, a strong enough sense of self, and and uh, psychotherapy is one way to do that. Uh, that is a way uh, to more easily let go of attachment to self and, and go beyond it. And then uh, the Mills, the interviewer, let's talk for a moment about the possibility, excuse me, let's talk for a moment about the invisibility of white privilege. In a recent research article, you wrote that white people in the United States often don't even need to resort to the denial and distancing strategies we've talked about because of something you call herd invisibility. What does that mean? And how does herd invisibility happen? Lowry, I think it happens in part because our society is structured in such a way as to hide the privilege that people benefit from. You can see this in obvious ways, for example. For example, segregation. 
Very few white folks in America actually have black friends. And even fewer live in circumstances where they see the disadvantages, the racial inequity in our system. So segregation allows for people to remain blind to their own advantages because they don't actually witness the racial inequities. They blind themselves to the racial inequities simply by the way they go about their daily lives. They don't have to make a conscious choice to ignore it so much as it's hidden from them by the way the society is set up. So that's one way that you get herd invisibility. And then each individual act that white people engage in to deny or distance actually serves the broader white community in that if I deny it exists and I create a narrative that it doesn't exist, then that serves you even if you aren't actively denying it yourself. Maybe uh, hearing this uh, as, a, as, a, as, as a spoken talk, uh, it's maybe a little bit uh, complicated. Um, From a Zen perspective, uh, we could say the challenge is uh, to to see what we're not conscious of, uh, to not to not deceive ourselves. There's this uh, wonderful exchange where a monk asked Zen Master Joshu Zhao Zhou, um, "What is the single most important thing for one?" the one who is wearing the Buddhist robes. And Zhao Zhou said, not to deceive himself. The longer we practice, the more we come to realize how much we have been deceiving ourselves. The more we see the ways in which we remain unconscious, unaware, unaware of the many, 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 many variations of, of greed and hostility and delusion that we carry in us. It's like that old saying, uh, a fish doesn't know it's in water. We can't see that which we're not seeing. And that's where practice comes in, is it happens. We, we become more self-aware just through practice. If that's supplemented through reading and workshops and other things, so much the better but it will happen on its own through serious, dedicated, daily Zen practice. Not that it ever um, becomes complete. The job is never done. The work is never done. And that's why we, we do want to um, call on teachers, mentors, coaches, and others 
to help us see what we're not seeing in ourselves. Uh, back to um, the interviewer, she asks, and these are some of the cloaking strategies that you describe people using to address some of the discomfort that they feel. Again, it goes back to the discomfort, our, our, um, the pain of us seeing what's there, if, if with, say, with respect to white privilege, that we, we find ways to ease that pain or to, to not look at it. And then he answers, yes, so invisibility is an interesting and ironic term because in reality, you have to be willfully ignorant not to see racial inequalities in our society. So the cloaking is a way of suggesting that what's happening is willful, but it doesn't require the participation of each individual person's, each individual person at all times. So that's the herd invisibility part. If enough people engage in it, it remains hidden. This is what I think is often hard to convey, that it really is an act of hiding. It can't be seen because it's the water we swim in. And then he says, from my perspective, he is, by, by the way, he is black. From my perspective, the disparities are so great, so stark, and so easily accessible that there really has to be some process in place to allow us to not see it. We have to engage in some psychological gymnastics as a society to deny its existence. And I think that for white people, there's discomfort when they're not allowed to do that. If that is, if we can't resort to our psychological gymnastics, if we can't hide. And for black people and other people of color, it can be enraging to see people engage in these mental gymnastics in a way that allows them to ignore the pain of, say, the black community or other communities of color. So, um, way, way to understand this in Zen terms is uh, that, well, we say in Zen, Zen is, Zen is a, a practice of daily losing. We don't really need to acquire anything to find wisdom, the wisdom that's in ourselves and the compassion that comes out of that wisdom. What we need to do is to slough off our um, devices, our psychological devices. We need to lose what blinds us to what's in front of us. Mills, is the fact that so many white people are joining the recent protests evidence that at least some white Americans are engaged in the dismantling, even if they don't know that's what they're doing? Lowry, I certainly hope so, but I don't personally tend toward optimism. And some of that, I think, is realism. The history of the United States is littered with movements 
that in the moment seemed like they were gaining traction, but there's inevitably been a backlash to those movements. And that backlash tends to come when you move beyond simply the moral benefit that people feel from pointing out the pain that people of color experience to the, necess the necessary work of actually changing the system, which comes at a personal cost. So the question will be, when it comes at a personal cost, will the energy that we see now in the streets remain? And she asks, and those personal costs mean giving up some of the privilege, right? I mean, you have to share some of the pie. Lowry, yes. When we really move towards trying to produce equity, are people going to be willing to give up those privileges? In my research, I find that after people acknowledge the existence of inequity, and even see that a particular policy would reduce the differences that are associated with that inequity, they can still honestly feel as if it's just it's unjust to support those policies, in part because people separate the disadvantages that black people endure from the advantages enjoyed by whites. They separate those things. They say, let's just eliminate those disadvantages. But when they see it as a cost to themselves, they find that unfair, unjust. They don't understand why they should have to pay a price for the elimination of someone else's disadvantages. Mills, <clears throat> so in concrete terms, what is it that white people can do to fully dismantle white privilege? Lowry. That's a really good question. Some of it is supporting policies that actually redistrib redistribute resources. That would be a big one. It would be accepting that the system of, say, education in this country is fundamentally unjust and working on policies that push back against such things as funding schools through property taxes that would have an effect on people's property values, perhaps short term. I would say, let's start with those two things alone and see how it goes. So the two things again are redistributing resources and um, not accepting that schools need to be funded through property taxes, uh, which he suggests could uh, reduce one's the, the, the value of one's own property, at least short term. I would also want people to understand that diversifying organizations does not mean letting in unqualified applicants. White privilege is such that when you've not really allowed the full pool of people to have access to opportunities, then the ones who are really benefiting from affirmative action are the people in the jobs right now. I mean, these are things that I think are going to be really tough and time will tell whether people are really going to be willing to go there after the outrage over the deaths of black people at the hands of political passes, at the hands of police passes. So after the outrage that we've been seeing, it's already, it seems waning 
it's hard to sustain outrage for months. After the outrage passes, are people going to be willing uh, to, in the, now here, and this is what he's talking about here, uh, to uh, acknowledge that so-called affirmative action uh, can also be understood as uh, benefiting whites. That in, in some cases, many cases maybe, uh, we have reached our positions, our jobs, uh, through unfair advantages. That can be seen as affirmative action. And then um, giving jobs to uh, people of color who don't have the same privileges could be seen as squaring that that uh, inequity. Her next question: The U.S. Census Bureau has projected that America's white population will drop below fifty percent in the year twenty forty five, and that the nation will reach majority minority status. In your view, will that have any effect? on the notion of white privilege. He says, well, those projections already do, right? Um, I, I uh, didn't quite fully edit this. When that actually comes to pass, that is when whites are in the minority, I think if we haven't rectified the deep inequalities in society right now, we're going to be in a really dangerous situation of having the vast majority of the political and economic power in the hands of a minority, that is, a white minority. I anticipate people will try to hold on to their advantages and maybe even more tightly as they start to see them challenged. Mills pulling down Confederate monuments and renaming places that were named for Confederate generals, is that helpful in the scheme of things, or is it just something that people are doing to feel good? Lowry, I think that for people of color, it's important symbolically because a lot of those monuments were put up as a way of reasserting white superiority in the decades after the Civil War. It probably gives blacks in the South a greater sense of comfort in their own physical space. And I think that for white folks, too, that symbolism is important. I don't think it changes things much, but I also don't know that I would just label it a feel-good action. I'm going to switch now to an article... Um, short one by a it's an opinion piece in the New York Times I don't have the date uh, by a Maeve Higgins M-A-E-V-E -E, Maeve Higgins she's a writer an author of uh, uh, Maeve in America essays by a girl from somewhere else so she's a contributing opinion writer and the name of the article is Trying to Be One of the Good Ones. And here this gets right back to the maybe the core of it all that, that sets up this system of denial and distancing is the need to have a good self-esteem. 
She says, there are a lot of reading lists being passed around among us whites. Besides books on racism and anti-racism, there are documentaries to watch, conversations to unpack, privilege to be examined, and a foreboding sense of work to be done. We are determined to do that work and determined to let everyone know we are doing it. This work is deemed necessary so we can become better allies for black people in the fight for racial justice. There are so many anguished conversations among white people taking place right now about what to write on our protest signs. About that time we said that thing to a black friend and it changed the energy in the room. About whether re-watching the movie The Help counts as progress. There is a frantic race to catch up, and that's got to be the correct instinct, right? I mean, look at this moment in history. I swear, if I don't do it right, I'll ask to speak to my own manager. However, when I pause for a second, I get a sneaking feeling that my ego is involved. I catch myself wanting to be one of the good ones, and I have to laugh at myself. Who exactly do I imagine is paying attention to me? Is somebody out there doing, doling out points? Black people are being killed in broad daylight by the police, by actual representatives of the state, and I am fretting over the wording of an Instagram post? Maybe, just maybe, this work I need to do, this learning and unlearning, unlearning would be a good Zen way of putting it, this learning and unlearning is not all about me. As a white woman in America, it's second nature for me to center myself in the discourse, but also to vanish from it when it's convenient. So permit me, please, to make this work of undoing my complicity in white supremacy in the name of racial justice all about me, you, and literally everybody else. First up, I disagree that this is in fact work. Work is chores, and chores get done. Mopping the floor, watching the help, getting a root canal. Those are chores that thankfully all come to an end. When you're white, understanding racism and anti-blackness is not a root canal. It's not a one-time only, pay your money, drill the rot out and get through it type of experience. This is a lifelong project we get to approach with grace and curiosity and the full understanding that will be difficult at times and beautiful at times and any chance we have to take part in it is frankly rather stunning. In a culture fixated on self-improvement, perhaps you could think about rescinding your power as a kind of berry class for your moral compass. In the beginning, it will be difficult on those tiny, rarely used muscles, but boy, will you be aligned after some years of daily practice, that is, practice um, of making this a kind of a, uh, exercise, daily exercise in getting, getting beyond it as something centering on yourself. I hope you don't, though. I hope you understand that grappling with this country's brutal past and imagining a future that is fair is not something you are expected to do alone. 
You're simply one drop in a new wave, a wave that slips easily into an ocean of people, deep and permanent, who have long been eroding the cliffs of white supremacy. I hope this comes as a relief to you as it did to me. There is great solace in putting aside the fallacy that you're entitled to a starring role in this story. When you jump from the brittle scaffold built by violence and go tumbling into the tide, you'll see that it's easy. You'll find leaders and peers there all around you. You won't worry then about messing up or getting lost. You'll know at once where you're needed. Much of the time that will be behind, much of the time that will be behind these leaders and peers, often beside them. Or when faced with danger, you're in front of them, bashing into the cliffs yourself so they can float and sparkle and enjoy the world away from the fight. I might just say that uh, one of our members uh, who uh, helps organizations all over the world uh, acknowledge and address uh, problems of systemic racism, that uh, this member is graciously, generously going to be uh, working with our own Zen Center trustees and officers, uh, and uh, it's it's going to be wonderful to have her help. Then finally, one powerful lie that we were born into is that white people deserve different, better lives than anyone else. We see now that this lie is deadly for others, and it is dangerous for us too. This lie that can only hold fast by isolating us from one another and having us do ugly things to keep that separation up, it divides us from what we are, just a bunch of molecules in a variety of formations that will dissolve and rebuild in the blink of time's eye. There's some pure dharma right there. Laugh at that lie as you squint out to the horizon and see the truth. Then jump into the ocean that will inevitably get you there, and you will love it, I promise. One last thing from going back to the Lowry interview. Uh, the interviewer asked, do you take seriously that people are concerned about the state of the country right now and that they really feel that this is going to lead to meaningful change? Lowry, I think that people are concerned right now and that they really do believe things are going to change. But the mechanisms in this country designed to maintain the status quo are incredibly powerful. And people can maintain the status quo while still feeling moral in their behaviors. For example, with respect to educational inequities, who doesn't want to give their child all the advantages they can? I think he here is talking about white people. But if we just do that, we'll maintain the status quo. So I think that the amount of work it will take to radically shift the racial hierarchy in this country is vast. I am heartened by the demonstrations and protests 
but my sense of how much further we would need to go is such that any optimism I have is incredibly guarded right now. And we could say the same about practice, the same about purifying ourselves of greed, anger, and delusion. We can say the same about purifying our karma, that it's not done in a few sashins or a few years or a few decades. It's important, I think, just as he frames this as a lifelong effort, and so did this other woman, uh, that we frame our practice and our, our, this, this work of um, seeing beyond the self, uh, that we see this as a practice of, of lifetimes, not just decades, but lifetimes. And if we can, if we can accept that, if we can see that this is, there's no quick fix for this. It's a, it's a, the, the, the power of resistance, ego resistance on an individual level and a collective level, the power, the staying power of our afflictions is such that we just have to relax, accept that we're going to need to do this into the indefinite future and, and, and appreciate that we have the opportunity to do this. We have a practice. We, we, we have a method to go about this. How fortunate we are. We're not just left to flounder on our own, but we have this, this practice that is the basis of change. It's the ground of change. Our time is up now. We'll stop and recite the four vows. <clears throat> 